that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, January 6th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. Joining me today, he's not in the studio. He's not even on Skype today, folks. He's actually out in Las Vegas at the CES, Consumer Electronics Show. This thing is getting ready to just kick off. It's Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Pretty good. Apologize in advance that I'm on my phone, but there's so so much media here clogged up to the Wi-Fi. Well, yeah, I feel like if we set the table the right way, at least we're giving everybody the appropriate expectations. Um, And and as we conclude today's show, we'll let people uh, in on some of the stuff you're looking forward to this week. And then, of course, uh, we will be following back up with you to get you know all of your takeaways from the show. Uh, but let's go ahead and kick off today's show. We've got a couple of things to talk about here that have happened over the course of the holiday season. Uh, we've got a couple of leadership changes in particular. Uh, one is at Berkshire Hathaway's Geico insurance business. Todd Combs will be taking over there at Geico. Uh, we've got Steve Street leaving Green Dot. And we've also got a uh, look back at our two stocks to watch for 2019, how they did. And you can't look back at how stocks did in 2019, Matt, without offering up the listeners our stocks to watch for 2020. So we're going to have a couple of new ideas or a couple of fresh ideas at least uh, for you to check out uh, the the stocks that we'll be keeping our eye on uh, for 2020. And we also, of course, have uh, some more last stock you bought and why. Uh, So let's go ahead and kick it off right now, Matt. First things first, let's talk about this leadership change at Berkshire Hathaway's Geico business. Everybody knows Geico is uh, the insurance business owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, Todd Combs, who's been with the company for a number of years now, and he's served the role as managing, uh, really, investments for Berkshire Hathaway. Right, he, he manages around $14 billion of investments for Berkshire Hathaway today, but he is also going to be taking over as the CEO of Geico. Matt, what do you make of this move? Is that, do they have the right guy here? Are they overloading him? Is that a little bit too much? Or what can we expect here? Well, they do. And uh, Todd Combs is widely expected to be one of the main candidates to succeed Buffett as Berkshire CEO. And the, th- the significant piece of information is that Buffett has repeatedly said that they want somebody who could be at the helm for decades. And out of there, there's, there's four main people that could take Buffett's place. There's Ajit Jain and Greg Abel, there's, and then there's Ted Weschler and Todd Combs, who are the two investment managers. Combs is by far the youngest. He's only 48. The rest are either in their upper 50s or 60s. So he's regarded as one of the top contenders to take over Buffett's spot. And this could really be a test to see if he could handle you know, being in charge of one of the Berkshire's actual operating businesses and handling some of the portfolio investments. So it's kind of adding responsibility, and I see this as kind of a very significant step in in the succession plan. Um, like I said, he's he's the youngest by a pretty wide margin out of the four top contenders, and he could, I mean, if he lists as long as Buffett could conceivably be at the helm for forty years or so. So this this is definitely a big development. Yeah, and I feel like. Part part of this news that maybe is overlooked by some, and maybe some people don't realize this, is um, 
Todd Combs actually had, he has some work history with Progressive Insurance. I mean, he used to work at Progressive Insurance uh, for a time. And, and, I mean, Progressive, I think, is a pretty good comparable to Geico. So you can look at both businesses. They do a lot of a lot of the same things, um, even down to their advertising campaigns. They've done a really good job of tying uh, together some some advertising campaigns that that uh, people people have just become very familiar with through the years. So I mean, I, it just kind of makes me wonder if he's not going to be able to pull from some experience there in whatever capacity um, in helping lead the Geico business forward. Right. And it's also important to mention that Geico is just one of Berkshire's insurance businesses. And Berkshire is a big insurance division. Uh, the reinsurance business, General Re in particular, is probably the biggest. Uh, so Geico is kind of like a, just one kind of component of the insurance business, which is headed up by somebody else like as a whole. So this is not like he's in charge of Berkshire's entire insurance operation. This is just kind of an, an added responsibility. I say just like Geico is something small. But yeah. It's it's definitely a you know it's a it's a big step but it's he's he's out of the four people I mentioned he's the only one who really has a combined responsibility of running an operating business and managing some of the portfolio which is probably the most significant takeaway out of this. Now to change the conversation here a little bit with uh, one CEO coming in we have another CEO who is leaving and this is a CEO that you are. Um, Fairly familiar with, right? I mean, we we've had him on our show before. Uh, Steve Street with Green Dot is is on the way out now, and it looks like that's something that is part of a greater leadership shakeup. Here, as the company kicks off 2020, it wasn't the greatest year uh, in 2019. Green Dot definitely they've had some challenges. I mean, they've also had some really good headlines and in some seemingly some good partnerships they forged here over the past couple of years. Uh, but but nevertheless, Steve Street. Now stepped down from Green Dot. Um, given what you know about this business, given what you know about Mr. Street, what do you make of this move, and what can we what can we look for from new leadership going forward? Well, this was sort of a planned retirement. Um, in the press release, he said that he well he founded Green Dot almost exactly twenty years ago. He gave himself a twenty year timeline to run the business. So, if you notice when when he re- the retirement was announced, the stock really didn't move all that much as. Um, Another one we follow a lot, Square, when um, the CFO, Sarah Fryer, announced she was leaving the stock plunge by like 30%. Yeah. So major leadership changes that are unexpected can really hurt a stock. This one wasn't that unexpected. And he's kind of, I don't want to say going out with while the company's on the bottom, but it, it, like you said, they've had a tough year. So I think that having some new blood in there could be welcome. Um, he's staying on as chief innovation officer, so he's not leaving entirely. Um, but he's this is a planned retirement. Um, the banking as a service business is definitely the future, which is not what he founded the company to do, but is, you know, kind of the wave of the future. He founded it as a prepaid card company. So they need a new CEO who can, you know, compete in this new era of online and virtual banking that can really drive the bank as a service business forward and make the most out of the legacy prepaid business. Um, but, it's not necessarily bad news. Like I said, it was a planned retirement. Um, the company's had a really rough year. I think the stock lost about two-thirds of its value. Um, so I don't see this as a big negative development as much as I see it as an opportunity. Normally, okay. we love founder-led business, but 
so, in this case, I think I think new blood is a good thing. So I'm going to put you on the spot here then, because right now the company with Bill Jacobs, who's the chairman and uh, interim CEO, this is not something that I think he intends to hang on to. I mean, Mr. Jacobs, I think is. Uh, coming up close to to eighty years old, so I mean he's he's you know I, I don't think that that we would look to him to actually be the new CEO of the business. Um, but but given your points there on banking as a service, sort of the the new direction this business is taking um, as we sort of enter this new fintech world where uh, all sorts of of services and and products are being offered, uh, particularly for those who who don't really have banking relationships or who've, who've been left behind uh, in our current banking environment here. Do you have any ideas as far as uh, folks who might fit the role here for the, for this new CEO position? You know, I don't want to really speculate on that, but I, I think regardless, I will say regardless of who they pick, I think the, new, the choice of the new CEO is going to move the stock more than Street's departure. Right. Um, it's, it's crucial that they get the right person in there, someone who can really, like, you know, someone young who could, who really knows how to compete in this space. I, I, and, it, and the reason it's so tough to name any names is because banking as a service is still such a very new concept. Yeah. So it's not like there's like a list of you know rock star people who who have a ton of experience in it. Um, I, I'd like to see them take somebody from, like, you know, an executive from one of the, these these up and coming like online banks. I think like a like a like a SoFi or something to that effect. Uh, not necessarily them, but you know, a company of that effect. I'd like to see them look to a, one of the newer players in this space, because I think that's what they're going to have to really adapt to to be successful. And it does feel like to me. I mean, the more I the more I think about this, the more I look at it. Um, it does feel like to me that this is going to have to be an external hire. I mean, I don't know that. I don't know. The goal is really to bring up someone from the inside. Uh, particularly given the the pivot that this business has been making over the past uh, couple of years. Right. I think if they do hire somebody internally, you're going to see maybe a negative reaction to the market. I, th- I think you're right. They do need to search outside, get some fresh fresh ideas in there. Uh, Green Dot has a great base right now. Like They have the best bank and service technology. They have the best relationships. I mean, you can't really get better than companies like Apple and Uber when it comes to relationships. That's true. So I, I want to see somebody who can really maximize that and somebody who's who really embraces the evolution of banking technology. Okay, well, let's switch uh, gears here. Let's talk about our stocks that we had chosen, our picks from 2019. Uh, these were the stocks we chose at the beginning of 2019, and we these were the, the stocks that, that we were watching. We thought had uh, set up for for some pretty good years. And and Matt, I'll, I'll go ahead. I'll let you lead off here. What was the stock? Remind our listeners what was your one to watch for 2019, and um, and 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 why? And then how ultimately did that work out for you? Well, mine was Square. Um, if you remember, in 2018, Square peaked at around $100 a share until Sarah Fryer announced her departure. And it ended the year just kind of just beaten down. So I just thought the selling had been completely overdone. And it looks like I was somewhat right. Square was up about 10% for 2019. But that's about a third of the S&P's total return. The S&P was up about 30% for yeah. 2019. Yeah. So... It's worth noting that Square was up about forty-five percent in the middle of the year, and when they when they announced they sold their caviar business and reduced their guidance a little bit, the stock kind of fell back down to earth. But I wouldn't say in any way that Square had a bad year. Uh, 
revenue was up you know, 40% year over year from what we know so far through the first three quarters. The company's profitable. It's doing a great job of attracting larger sellers. It just rolled out its stock trading app uh, feature on its cash app. Um, and speaking of the cash app, it's just firing on all cylinders. Um, in the third quarter, the cash app was a quarter of the company's total revenue. It, used, it was just a few quarters before that it was virtually nothing. Um, and we should get a nice glimpse at how the cash app's doing when their year-end earnings come out later this month. Um, they only update the cash app's user base once a year. It was $7 million at the end of 2017. It was $15 million at the end of 2018. And we'll see what it is at the end of 2019. But I, I don't think you can make an argument that Square's business isn't doing well. It's just whether the stock valuation is, is justified is kind of the, the big question. And I think I, I I don't want to repeat my pick because, you know, that doesn't make for very good podcasting. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't be surprised if Square had a very good year in 2020, regardless of what the overall market does. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, this it's clearly when you look at all of the metrics, the business is doing really well. And, and I mean, we never look at one-year windows as, you know, ultimate determinant determiners of, of, of whether this is a good investment or a bad investment. And I mean, it's not, it didn't have a bad year. I mean, it returned better than 10%. But yeah, in the context of the market, I mean, obviously the market outperformed it. But um, again, I mean, this is a, still a young business that's investing a lot in its future. And um, and, and I, you know, for me, I, I think I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, this is one I still own and I, I still uh, expect big things from them. Um, I I picked uh, Ameris Bancor, which is a company I've spoken about before on this show. I've spoken before uh, about it on uh, Motley Fool Money as well. But Ameris Bancor, that little bank that's headquartered, it's actually headquartered out of Jacksonville, Florida now, I believe, uh, but but ultimately was born and, and uh, headquartered out of Moultrie, Georgia for for a number of years. And and uh, you know Ameris, this was all based on this idea that they they announced this big fidelity acquisition in 2019. And we had seen, we had talked a lot about this throughout the year, consolidation in the banking sector, especially with interest rates so low, banks trying to, to scale up in, in order to Combat really, I think, what's been a tough environment for them from the profitability perspective, and and so yeah, I mean, so far so good. I, I think they've integrated this at this uh, acquisition nicely. It was a good 2019 for Ameris shareholders. The stock was up 34 uh, percent versus the market's 29. So, if if you own Ameris shares, congratulations. I think you should feel very good about that. Um, I do own shares. I'll continue to hang on to them. Um, but all in all, I think it was really the acquisition that was that was the driver uh, for the business, and um, if, in 2019, and, and I think we can look forward to a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities to come for them in the coming years. Uh, now, as I mentioned, we we've got our picks that we reviewed from 2019. Matt, we got to give our listeners the stocks that we're watching for 2020, and I'll let you lead off here. What is your one to watch for 2020, and why? All right, so I'm going to pivot to a real estate stock here. Um, I'm looking at Simon Property Group. They are the uh, massive real estate investment trust that focuses on balls. Oh, yeah. We actually walked through a Simon property to get to where we're sitting right now at the convention. <laughs> um, there, there's, I think, at least two that I know of right on the Las Vegas Strip. Um, but retail, it should be no secret, retail's been under pressure lately. Uh, there's been bankruptcies, store closures all over the place. Uh, Forever 21 is the latest big bankruptcy. But Simon's malls are kind of in a class by themselves. Anyone who lives, anyone who lives near one knows that. Um, I've talked about Simon on the show before. Yeah, uh, The stock's very close to a, it's 52-week it's low. Um, it, the, it's almost yielding 6% right now. 
and it's doing a great job of turning its malls into mixed-use properties. Some of them have hotels attached to them, for example. Some have office spaces, uh, entertainment venues, uh, casinos. The one right by you guys has a casino in it. Um, it's the biggest and best, well, most financially flexible mall operator, so they have the money to do anything they want you to stay ahead of the curve. Um, they have a dominant market share in, in outlet retail. Any of the, Anything under the premium outlet brands is assigned to property. Um, and it's trading for less than 13 times its, its earnings. So I, I think Starwood is, or I'm sorry, I think Simon has the, uh, the potential to really, really shine going forward. I think retail, as, especially if retail starts to stabilize, which I think it will. And what's the ticker for Simon? Sorry, that is SPG. All right, Simon Properties. Um, okay, well, I, you know, I kind of went back and forth on this one, and ultimately, it was a recent headline that sort of sealed the deal for me on this one. I am going to go with PayPal for 2020 ticker PYPL. Um, everybody out there, I'm sure, is probably shocked and flabbergasted that I would make such a bold and controversial pick. I know. I'm sorry, folks, but let me explain why. Um, Honestly, I mean, we've talked about PayPal and Square, companies like this, uh, all of the time on this show. So, really, nothing has changed from the perspective of the business. We like it a lot for a lot of reasons. I mean, they're growing their top line uh, at a compound annual growth rate of 18% over the last three years. It's a profitable business. It's cash flow positive. They've got an awesome balance sheet with $5 billion in net cash. CEO Dan Shulman's been at the helm since 2014, continues to make good decisions to just take this business in the right direction. But one thing that stood out to me here recently, I don't know if you saw the headline here, as you remember, probably midway through 2019, they made this big investment in Mercado Libre. Um, as the year wrapped up here, they've expanded their relationship with Mercado Libre, which essentially PayPal is now going to be made available as a payment option on Mercado Pago uh, online checkout for people in Brazil and Mexico. And that ultimately. You know, opens the door. That brings the opportunity for for those 300 million plus users of PayPal's platforms to shop at all sorts of new merchants that that have to do with that Mercado Libre ecosystem, more or less. And Mercado Libre has become as much of a payments company as a retail company. To be honest with you, I mean, when you look at some of the numbers here, I mean, they just um, recorded in their most recent quarter uh, more payment volume in their off. Mercado Libre platforms than the on Mercado Libre platforms. So I mean, they they are uh, facilitating payments at a, at a, a rapid fire, and and I expect that to continue. Now we're seeing PayPal and Mercado Libre uh, getting a little bit closer. You're going to see Mercado Pago as a payment method uh, offered at PayPal merchants around the world. Uh, they're going to be expanding Zoom's presence, the Zoom the remittance company that PayPal acquired. So these investments in cross border payments. Uh, investments in growing the networks. These are win-win situations for both companies. I, I think PayPal is just in a very good position to keep on growing. Um, and, and certainly, a long-term trend that we love here is that move towards cashless payments. Uh, and PayPal is becoming a more holistic solution for a lot of folks out there, as is as is Mercado Pago and, and the products and services that Mercado Libre offers. So I just think it's really neat to see these companies getting a little bit closer uh, to very big networks. I think with a lot of of opportunity to grow in the coming years. And you know, 
PayPal it did it did okay last year. It wasn't too bad, um, but it, it was even outpaced by the market a little bit in 2019 as well. Um, hopefully, we'll see it outpacing the market in 2020. Uh, but regardless, it's a stock that I continue to own, a company I continue to like, and that's going to be my pick for 2020, Matt. Um, so there you go. Let's jump on into some of the uh, last stock you bought and why. You, you listeners out there, you never ever cease to amaze me with all of these great stock ideas you keep coming up with here. Email and Twitter, you keep on letting us know the last stock you bought and why. We have this, uh, <laughs> we have this this trail that we have to keep on reading because you guys just keep on sending them, and we love it. So if you have any. More great ideas, the last stock you bought and why. Remember, you can get us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus or hit us up on email at industryfocus at fool.com. Uh, we'll start off here with an email we got. The last stock I bought was Brookfield Asset Management. And in fact, the Brookfield family of stocks, BIP, BEP, BPR, and BAM, actually make up the core of my portfolio. I could list a half dozen solid reasons why I'm so confident in Brookfield, from the historically market-beating returns to their first-class management team, and all of those would be true. But at the end of the day, I suspect the real reason I'm so keen on the asset management space is actually just because of the monopoly, man. Because when you're 10 or 11 years old, your board game understanding of business primarily consists of owning real estate, utilities, and railroads. With Bruce Flat and Brookfield, I intend to pass go many times over, and I'm inclined to think this one is probably a forever stock Cheers and warmest holiday wishes, Matthew Evans. Matthew, I like the way you're thinking there. Matt, I bet you like the way Matt's thinking there, too, huh? We do. That's one of my favorites as well. All right. Next up, Lisa Wharton at Jang Wart. She says, I recently bought some Datadog a few weeks ago because I like to risk my money on another SaaS company per the Motley Fool's encouragement. Well, we do love our SaaS businesses here, Lisa. I didn't buy Peloton because I don't like the business model. Expensive bike, expensive membership. They should give away the hardware. Yeah, I'm not. I haven't bought into Peloton either yet, Matt. But then this was funny because we got a follow up from that tweet from almost a noob at almost underscore noob who said, "I love the SaaS names. I bought some Trade Desk yesterday. Peloton is a joke. It's the next meme stock after Beyond Meat." So almost noob, uh, almost a noob coming in. There were some strong thoughts there on on Peloton and Beyond Meat. Uh, I, I don't know about meme stocks, but yeah, Matt, I, I don't know that I've bought into Peloton or Beyond Meat either yet. Yeah, I wouldn't buy either. I love, I love the Peloton product, but I wouldn't buy the stock. Yeah. Yep. Well, speaking of the Peloton product, Consumer Electronics Show is going on right now. You're out there in Las Vegas at the CES. Uh, now, I know this is just getting started, and this is your first time out there. And so, we're going to revisit once you get back and tell our listeners about all the cool stuff you saw out there, particularly as it relates to fintech. Uh, but, but tell us real quick here before we sign off for the day, is there anything you've got on the schedule, something you're really looking forward to hitting out there uh, while, while you're in Vegas at CES? Well, uh, Panasonic has some kind of big announcement taking place in about two minutes, so we're going to head there in a, in a second. And uh, there's a big session about Libra tomorrow that I think I'll probably be talking about on this show after. Um, there, there's a uh, session called the Libra Effect tomorrow morning, and it's people from Facebook and some of the other partners. So I'm looking forward to that one. So I'll have some updates on Libra, cause, which we've talked about. 
several times and not always in the most positive way. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, Miss, listen, I did, I'm nothing if not open-minded. Maybe they can sway us, Matt. But, man, take copious, copious notes, and we will revisit when you get back. I'm going to let you get to that Panasonic uh, presentation now. But, Matt, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to call in today. Have a great time out there in Las Vegas. Safe travels back. All right, Jason, I'll see you next time. All right, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.